This week I'm joined by Roger Bretherton. Roger's somebody who I have a lot of time for and respect for. Um, he's got a really interesting way of expressing his Christianity and what faith means in his life and the utility that it holds for him. And I think this conversation is a really interesting one because we dive into the sorts of things Roger holds and why he holds them to be true. This is the first of a multiple part conversation. Um, we're looking at about one a month, I think, for at least the next six months, um, because I think there's a lot of space for our exploration and a lot of uh, contents to get through together. So I'm really excited to see where this conversation leads. As always, please don't forget to like, subscribe and hit that notification bell. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Roger Bretherton. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion and life. This podcast is all about listening. We want people to share their reasons for faith or their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination. And I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Roger. Roger, it's great to have you on the show. Hello, Sam. It's great to be with you. So, Roger, um, we've been talking now for quite a few months, um, I think probably since January, really, this year, which is uh, 2021 for those listening in the vast future. Um, I, yeah, I've been really intrigued by our conversations and I've really enjoyed um, the sorts of dialogues we've had. Um, and um, I think it's been a long time coming, actually, having you on the podcast, because I think we've got quite a lot planned, really, um, over the coming months, which is... Um, really exciting for me, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I guess that, that you feel the same from what you've been saying. Um, so yeah, basically, um, I wanted to kind of start the conversation off, Roger, and ask you, um, what what was it about my conversation on Unbelievable and the sorts of dialogues that I've been having on the podcast that made you want to get in touch, that made you want to begin to, um, yeah, have the back and forth that we've been having? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really kind of difficult question to answer in some ways, isn't it? When you so, you you see somebody. In your case, I'd never heard of you, never met you, and saw you on that unbelievable show where I think it was about you know whether evolution destroyed faith or so. It was kind of, wasn't named very well in my opinion in terms of what you were really bringing to it. Um, I, and I knew the person you were dialoguing with. I'd actually shared a stage with him. We both addressed the Faraday Institute in Cambridge together, literally a few months before you were on Unbelievable. Um, but but I was just really really attracted to you in the intellectual sense, really. I just kind of thought there's a guy I could really have a conversation with. And I, I think what it was, I, I think that there were kind of a few things that kind of made me think that. So firstly, I felt um, that there was a real openness to you. So one of the things you said in that podcast was um, that, that you wonder whether you wanted not to believe, whether somehow your your unbelief or your scepticism was somehow motivated. And as, as your listeners will find out, I'm a psychologist. So whenever anybody says anything like that, I'm very, very fascinated by it. Um, the, the other side of it was that, that you clearly come from a, a Christian background that's relatively similar to mine. It's a little bit different, but um, 
I know the Bible college that you trained at. I, I think if we talked for long enough, we'd probably find out we had mutual friends somewhere. So there was a kind of familiar background in that sense. Um, and then there was also this sense that alongside that sort of openness that I encountered in you, a sort of honesty that was just inquiring and thinking and wondering, there was a sort of intellectual humility I felt to the way you came across. We'll find out if that's really true, I guess, as we go along. Um, but there was also a kind of ballsiness about you that I really liked as well. So I, I like the bit where um, the guy you were was sort of dialoguing with said, I believe God has revealed himself in human history. And you went back and said, you know, I'm not quite sure about that. And um, even though I, I mean, we'll get into it, I would be someone who would believe that God has revealed himself in human history, however we conceptualize that and think about it. Um, I really, really like the fact that in that kind of context, you were just able to go, okay, I'm open and I'm thinking, but also, you know what, I have some positions too. I've done some thinking myself. Um, and so it's that issue of kind of commitment, but openness for me feels like that's the key to any dialogue. And it, when we get to talk about kind of what I believe, I feel that I hold it in exactly the same way. You know, I'm really deeply committed to what I believe in many different ways, even though I'm not always certain about it, but I'm really, really deeply open. Uh, and, and actually, if I'm really honest, I have an affinity for anything that seems to be a threat to it. So anytime a question or a query or a doubt comes my way, um, instead of running away from it, avoiding it, there's part of me that goes, that's where to go. That's what you need to talk about. You know, that's where the strengthening or the clarity of your belief will come from. And so when I heard you on Unbelievable, I thought there's a guy I want to speak to for those reasons. Oh, that's very kind of you, mate. Maybe we should stop the podcast there. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, no, um, I think what, so it's what happened after Unbelievable is I got, um, inundated with people messaging me and um as these things happen i spoke to loads of people and just had to make time in my diary and um i think i've only actually got two people that i still regularly speak to um and and you being one of them and we we talk once a month maybe more actually um definitely more via email and stuff and i think something i've really um taken away from the from the friendship that's grown between us has been um your desire to honestly ask hard questions and and i guess robustly have a conversation which is helping the other person also understand where they are so you're really interested in knowing what's in your own heart and your own mind and where and where you're going but you're also really interested in, in others and in what's in their heart and their mind and why those things are there in the first place and actually it's it's it's, it's that that i've really found interesting so i think i mean listener we we have quite a few different episodes planned that are going to be dropping about once a month really um where yeah roger and me are going to be kind of diving into different issues and topics because i think um there's a space between us that is um, worth exploring and um i think it's gonna be really exciting to do that and i guess roger to kind of start start the ball rolling forwards and um, it'd be really helpful for you to kind of um explore yourself for us and explore your belief system and um you know i'm, I'm aware we're going to dive into this deeply i'm aware we're going to be pushing most of the buttons but um just as, as 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 an as an overview um for the listener kind of the sort of christianity you believe in the sort of things that you hold to be the foundation to your belief system and then we can kind of look at the other side of the coin which is also that sort of doubt element to your story and, and how you um how you navigate that and how you deal with that and there's there's quite a few questions i have there so do you have to start off with roger would you mind just kind of helping us understand what what, what is belief and faith for you it's a really good question um well, I, I wonder if the best way of answering that is for me almost to set it up like a hypothesis that we can then explore and we can, can deconstruct and we can kind of talk about what we mean so so I, I wonder if what I should do is sort of make an assertion um 
that feels a bit out there and feels a bit sort of unsubstantiated. And then it's an assertion we can explore and we can talk about what I mean by that. Um, so um, it, I probably just need to explain a little bit about who I am in, in the context of that. So, so I, I'm a psychologist. I trained as a clinical psychologist originally and worked in the National Health Service here in the UK uh, for 10 years. Um, I particularly um, trained in trauma and personality disorders. So I was right at the heart of the real sort of tough end of mental health. Um, so many, many of my patients would have been self-harming and suicidal. So right in the middle of all of that. Um, and then uh, about 14 years or so ago, I shifted across into academia. So I now work at, um, in a psychology department at a university, but I'm still still an applied psychologist in the sense that I'm, I'm very, very interested in, uh, you know, psychology can be very theoretical and experimental, but I'm still very much interested in the stuff that's about how does this help people in some way. And so the area of psychology I study um, is closely related, I guess, ultimately to kind of religion and spirituality, really. So it's sometimes called character strengths, which means it's the study of positive qualities of character like hope, gratitude, wisdom, uh, authenticity, courage, persistence, humility, etc. You know, many of these kind of things um, that 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 from the sort of theoretical point of view these many of these things have been celebrated around the world throughout all time pretty much so when human beings have sat down and gone what does a good life look like they've come up with a sort of list of virtues that look a little bit like that now so my day job most of the time is that i'm studying those things scientifically so i'm measuring them i'm developing in instruments that that kind of measure them interventions and finding out what they do which basically a lot of the time i develop really nice interventions that i think should improve people's well-being and and they don't you know they don't work <laughs> that's, that, that, that's quite an important point which we will come back to is that is that in my job all the time i know when i'm wrong so all the time i'm kind of constructing things i'm get really enthusiastic about it and then I discover it it's not what I thought it was so that's quite an important element of what I do so, so that's my kind of day job but then alongside that I, as an academic I, I'm also really interested in the theology of all that so I'm really really interested in so so I am a Christian I've been I would have called myself a Christian probably since birth because I was sort of raised Methodist but I think I really got serious and made it my own probably in my late teens I would imagine sort of mid to late Teens. Um, and so when I'm studying these notions, I'm studying them scientifically, but I'm also studying them theologically and then also practically, which means um, so the theological practice, just to kind of outline the whole thing, the theological piece means that basically in the same way that I've heard you discuss the Bible and looking at Greek and Hebrew and all. I mean, I'm literally read through the Bible, looking at what are all the Greek and Hebrew terms and the thematic things. For at the moment, I'm actually doing faith, so I'm looking through, you know, where does faith and belief turn up, and what is it, and what does conviction mean? Um, and so I'm interested in that. I'm looking at the science, and then I also have this really deep applied bit, which most of the time is in secular contexts. So most of the time, I'm sort of dealing with large organisations, which range from tiny charities to huge multi multinational banks and teaching them the, these kind of, this kind of psychology of character and what it does for them and how it works. Um, but some of that practical stuff um, is with churches. So is with, you know, running retreats um, and uh, training. In fact, on Friday, I'm, I'm training all the clergy in my entire county. So about 150 of them are coming together to hear about this sort of area of psychology and how it can help them and how it can work for them. 
And so when when you put all of that together, I know this is, this is a really long answer to your questions, <laughs> but when when you put all, all those things together, then then basically I think what I land on is that for me, um, following Jesus in the way that I follow Jesus in a pragmatic, day-to-day, practiced way, I, I'm convinced that of all the ways of living that are available to me, that's the best one I've found. Um, and that um, you can look at that from a very proximal way. So I can look at how are these things sort of working day by day? You know, how does gratitude just make me feel a bit better? Because it just does. But then you could also, you can go to a really far end of it and say, but then there's this kind of transcendent dimension to it that's a bit more difficult to substantiate and prove, which nevertheless, I feel I find to be true as I live into it, even though I can't prove it. So I, so I guess if we're gonna, gonna start with the statement, I guess that's the statement that, that I've become really, really convinced that following Jesus is the best way of living that, that I've yet encountered. find that really interesting and um i i i understand it to be honest with you having been where i was in christianity and, and where i am now I, I can see why people would think that and i don't necessarily have an issue with it but i think it's worth pushing into because it's a really um interesting statement i mean would you say then that if jesus was replaced with another deity let's make a deity up um let's call him john so you've got john rather than jesus okay and would, would you would you say that um you know believing in john um gives you these sorts of meanings and feelings and and is the best way to live so what i'm trying to say there is um this this as let's i mean this deity could have done most of the same sorts of things kind of did the same sort of things but basically you, what you have is a very kind of 21st century um positive um outlook on life due to the beliefs in a god as jesus would give somebody um like is there any difference between that and the thing that you're professing to be real so i mean did, uh, that's probably a terrible way to explain it, so i'll try and do it one more time um so apologies um basically um are you are you trying to say that there is um someone behind this thing that you can actually know and touch and understand and interact with or are you saying that there is a um almost like a cultural substrate that you have attached yourself to due to the way you were raised the different experiences you've had and the sort of personality that you've imbued from those around you and your parents and you know um evolution um which 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 one is it is it is, is jesus a real person or is it almost like this john it could be anybody john james whoever um because of it actually being rooted in things that aren't actually the person itself how, how do you how do you look at that roger it's a, it's a really really good question and it, and it's one I, I feel like i can't give it an immediate answer so can i can I tell you the question I probably can answer to begin with? And then we'll see if we're getting closer to the question you're asking. Because I wonder if that question that I, I know is a really, really important question too, because it's really key to your deconstruction, really. Um, I don't know if I'm going to answer that in this episode. So let's let let me just sort of prepare. That's fine. Look, it, can, it can be like a cliffhanger. So listener could be like, oh, I have to wait till next time. <laughs> Yeah, or, or it might be one of those things where actually I can't answer it and I'll just pass it on episode after episode. The <laughs> yeah, you've is actually saying, got no answers. <laughs> it, it'll be like the finale of Lost, you know, J.J. Abrams never gives us the answer. It just sort of goes on. I, I think I do have an answer to that, actually, on some level, but I think it's going to just take a bit longer to explore. Um, because I've never really thought about would I replace Jesus with John? What I have thought quite a bit is, it could I take Jesus and Christianity completely out of what I'm doing? And it would all still stand, you know, so it's good kind of 
you know, it's just a good positive. It's evidence based. We know that if people live like this, they're going to be happy and all, all that kind of thing. Um, and um, so, so what I, I and I think in, in order to answer the question, I kind of have to talk a little bit about the sequence in which those ideas came to me. Because ultimately, I, I, I started as a Christian and then gradually, bit by bit, um, sort, sort of, I, I, would, uh, I, I, I was really kind of, I, when, when I was a student, let, let's just start with that. I um, was doing a lot of leadership stuff in student thing. I, I led a student church plant for a while um, with some friends of mine that was hugely successful. It went from sort of 12 people to 70 people over the course of three or four years. You know, it was really, really big. And... And um, what I did with that with that church plant was really began with um, thinking, what would it have been like to be just an ordinary Joe person, not necessarily a disciple, not necessarily someone who believed any anything, who like in you know the life of Brian is stood at the back of the Sermon on the Mount and can't quite hear what's going on and you know all all that kind of thing, but you get to encounter it as if for the first time, as if what would it have been like. How, how can we kind of contextualize this enough so we get a chance to get back at the excitement of hearing these things, perhaps for the first time, hearing them in those ways? And so what, what we did with this um, church plant that I, I was leading at that point in time is we probably spent about two or three years going through the Sermon on the Mount really, really slowly. And in the process, bit, I, I was already a clinical psychologist by that point. So I was working four days in the NHS and one day sort of doing this sort of student Christian stuff. Um, the way I started reading the Sermon on the Mount was basically we develop what I call value exercises, which are what is the value that's being taught in this passage in the Beatitudes or in the teaching on relationships or in the piece on prayer or fasting or how to use your money? And how can I develop psychological attitudes that develop that value, help people to really, really think about, do I have that? Do I want it? Um, so, so you end up with this very sort of experimental version of Christianity, really, which is if you do it, does it work? So, so the book I wrote about it was called The God Lab. So I wrote a book called The God Lab about the Beatitudes. And basically, if every Beatitude goes, blessed are the nerdy nerd for those, it's the dardy da. Mine was like, if you do nerdy nerd, do you get dardy da? Um, I now think that's completely the wrong hermeneutic through which to read the Beatitudes, but it was fun. <laughs> it was fun at the time. Um, and um, and so, it's, so the reason I'm saying this is, so gradually what I began to do is I began to think that that there were just a certain set of ways of being if you like that the sermon on the mount which are, for me is kind of the core teaching of jesus and it's kind of the the way in the way i would like to live the way i kind of push into living um that ultimately what that is is it's not so much a set of rules to follow it's more jesus's attempt to say this is the kind of person i would like you to become this is the person you're supposed to be so these are the values you're to embody these are the way you're supposed to live but you're supposed to incarnate it so some of the things that we take as commands are really actually just examples and the thing is to absolutely imbibe the thing live it and then see what happens um, as you live it out so the reason I'm telling you all this is because so that came first and then what happened was and I, I'm working in the NHS working with trauma depression anxiety etc and then I swap across to the university a few years later like I actually work in the university and then I come across character strengths and virtues as a field and I suddenly feel like I've discovered the scientific field that helps to inform what I was doing in the in the Christian side of things. So, so for me, it, it's it's really difficult to imagine how, how I could take the Christian bit out of it at the moment. So it feels like the Christian bit was the core of it. 
and then the sciencey ways of living it they're all like lots and lots of different cool applications that can be measured and thought about in those ways and I feel like it's almost like if I were to take the Christian piece out of it the rest would lose coherence um it wouldn't have the same motive behind it anymore I feel like it might not work for me quite so well you know so I mean I know you've talked about the sort of the need to believe what you do on the podcast at various points. I feel like I, I would have to really significantly reconstruct it. And just to finish off the question, um, when when um, it's interesting, when different religious groups have critiqued the field of psychology that I work in, they've called it the positive donut. So they've said, it's like this lovely thing with all these lovely sprinkly things, gratitude, love, et cetera, all around the outside of it, but there's nothing in the middle lending it any coherence. Now, the interesting thing is Buddhists say that, Confucianists say that, um, some of my kind of Islamic friends say that, and I say that from a Christian perspective. So I definitely feel I wouldn't be able to live it quite so well without Jesus at the center. But at the same time, you can hear, as I'm saying that, that I do acknowledge that other people put other things in the center that seems to work just as well for them. Okay. I find that really interesting. I say that after, after everything you say because I think it is um, understandable. And I think what I'm trying to get at is, I wonder, is it really this person, Jesus, in the first century, um, wherever he was on the um, the side of the mountain, telling these people to live in this certain way? Or is it actually just a story of a collation of sayings we believe somebody kind of said probably as they were going along their ministry so say jesus did actually have a three-year ministry as kind of we put all gospels together and kind of vaguely work out it's about three years we think um jesus could have very well have said things like this throughout his ministry and what someone's done i'm matthew i believe the attitudes are in um he's collated them all and kind of said this is you know the vague teaching of jesus it might not be a literal event that happened it could be that someone's kind of put jesus in a place and made him say things that were kind of very similar to what he said um which is what I think has happened, but that we can argue about that never because nobody really cares that much. But um, the thing I'm interested in is uh, how do you think that um, it's not just a, I guess, idea placed upon a document which has then been propagated into time and we now hold to be a, a fundamental way of living? Um, and how do you see the person behind that and actually go, that is what I'm touching. That is what I'm connecting with. There's this, there is this person that has given the Beatitudes and I'll give you the Beatitudes. I'll say it happened in one, one sitting, everyone sat there listening apart from that guy at the back who couldn't quite hear. Um, and, um, like, how do we, how do we actually begin to, um, understand that it isn't just actually a, a good fundamental way of living. And I think that's actually something we could talk about as well. Cause I don't think it is necessarily, um, coherently possible to live out in that precise way, but I'd say some of the sort of things Jesus is saying um, are, are positive and are good and are helpful ways of living. I completely agree with that. So um, my question really, Roger, is, and feel free to park it and move on to something else, but um, how do you know it's a person that you're getting behind rather than just a theological framework that somebody's given you, i.e. Matthew or whoever actually wrote Matthew? Is, is it a person or is it a framework? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Um, so so for, firstly, let me say, so I, I do find it very livable. So that that's, it, it, I, and I guess we could argue, maybe I've interpreted it a way that makes it livable. You know, maybe I've sort of twisted it and created it in some way to make it that way. So we could kind of have that discussion. But I, I find the Sermon on the Mount incredibly coherent, like really, really coherent. And that when you sort of live by it, it really, from my point of view, it really, really hangs together. 
And, and it seems to me that, that the question you're asking really is, is the historical question, isn't it? So it's, are, are we completely blocked from that history? In other words, can we just know nothing about it really? And we just kind of have to live with that the, there are these fragments that some editor, maybe it was Matthew, maybe it was someone who pretended to be Matthew who all threw together. It seems like like the, the other extreme, which I also don't accept, is the more fundamentalist thing, which is literally, this is absolutely exactly what Jesus said. And if we were there, those were the exact words that would have come out of his mouth. Um, and I guess I, if I were to think about these two things, um, I, I mean, in, in terms of epistemology, we're really talking about two kind of different, um, different kind of epistemologies there. Um, I'm really, Given that as we speak, the Euros are currently on, I'm really tempted to use a football analogy. So let me just go with the football analogy. So it's when when a referee blows offside, if the referee was a fundamentalist realist, you know, naive realist, he's saying it's an offside. I blow my whistle. There's an absolute one to one correspondence between me calling it an offside and it being an offside, like the words and the thing are the same. If we were to go to the other side, we take quite a sort of deconstructionist perspective where we say it's only an offside when the referee blows his whistle. So the referee blows his whistle, that somehow constructs this notion of an offside, um, which for Jesus, that means really, we can't really get at what he's there. So I'm just sort of reading into it, whatever I want to read into it. And I'm picking up tradition and I'm telling things, but I'm probably somewhere in between, which I, I think most people would sort of call a, a critical realist perspective, which is, I do think there is something there to be connected with that really happened and is really important. Some of it is obscured, some of it is generalized, some of it's a bit missing. Um, I sometimes feel when I read the Sermon on the Mount that you're not really getting what Jesus said. You can't, I, I sort of view it as it's like when my students don't go to my lecture and they pick up my PowerPoint slides afterwards, they're trying to thread together what, and sometimes they come up with nonsense in the, in trying to join the dots together. And I kind of feel like that's what we're getting with the Sermon on the Mount. I also don't have a problem that in an era before mass communication, Jesus didn't just say that stuff once. He probably said it 200 times, running around repeating it over and over and over and over and over again. So it wouldn't be surprising if that then interfered with the way um, the, uh, the the Sermon on the Mount has been communicated to it. But but I guess I it's I, I know you you're kind of trying to get Tom Wright to come on your show at some point. I really hope he does. But the the biblical scholar Tom Wright. In one of his books, it's in one of his quite big books, I think he's going through all these different ways of understanding history. And he ends it by saying something like, so in the end, I, I largely believe that something pretty much like what is in the Gospels happened. And I kind of think that's probably where I am. So I'm not a fundamentalist. I don't feel like you have to make them all fit together. I can live with the fact that there might be a bit of corruption or things missing. But nevertheless, I do think there's some truth in there, you know, um, so in a sense, I, I guess one way of putting it, I, I do think there are things that genuinely happen, some genuine facts, where the word fact comes from Latin meaning factum, which means things done. Something like this was said, some, somebody like that did say those kind of things. So that, that's where I come at it from the historical point of view, anyway. That's really helpful. Thank you for that. Um, I, kind of, I guess what, the way I look at it is um, I think the Beatitudes are a really um, interesting, I say discourse, I'm aware it's more of like a, um, a, a, a sermon, as it is called Sermon on the Mount. It's, um, you know, it's somebody kind of saying all these really powerful um, 
things in a really kind of coherent down-to-earth way um but i still think it's what, what i find interesting about it is i still think it's um it's it's expressing things that we might not necessarily say are the most healthy or helpful today. Um, and I think I can't say much more than that without actually pulling up the gas shoes and, and kind of working through it, which I'm aware we probably don't want to do right now. But I think what, what I'm trying to get at is um, there there are theological undertones within it, which I think could actually be harmful. Um, I think most of what it says is helpful. And I think it is actually for the time and place actually quite revolutionary. Um, I think certain things like the golden rule um, that you kind of see within there in ways um, have been taught before. And Jesus could have heard that from somewhere else and brought that in. And I think there's, there's, there's lots there that I think um, would be very rare for somebody who was probably um, very, very uh, aware of a sort of pharisaical uh, way of living to be saying these things was almost like um oh gosh this is this is quite uh, this is quite different from what we usually hear pharisees say and and my my my, my new testament teacher said this to me quite a lot and i found it really interesting is this idea that um you know pharisees didn't follow people around trying to make them kind of you know, recant or change their mind or stuff um so could it could it actually be that jesus was taught within some sort of like face uh yeah um pharisaical school could it could it be that actually they were following him around because they were like this person's starting to say things that are um revolutionary and different to what we've taught them to say uh we should probably go around and actually you know chastise this person and make them kind of get back in line almost and he's had this revelation and this understanding of what it means to live a holy godly life which i think actually fits really well with with the idea of jesus being a apocalypse apocalyptic first century preacher you know that's i kind of think i think that's the closest jesus we can really get to um again i don't think we've got time and space to jump into that today but um that's an area that i'm really excited to be exploring uh, with various people on, on the podcast and to come on the podcast as well so um yeah looking forward to going down that road for sure um so I, I think go on. just before you go can i ask a quick because i mean you said that there's some undertones that are um problematic and i i'm not trying to catch you out I'm, I'm genuinely not aware of what what you mean by that so it could be that you just want to tell me and then we park it and we talk about something else but um I, i'm genuinely interested in what what are the bits that you think are, are not helpful or could really be dangerous perhaps in some way i think it's it's the element of judgment and how one responds to something that you are um, naturally disposed. That's not the right word that you are um, set towards. Can't get that word out. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's the element about kind of um, cutting off your right hand or gouging out your eye, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm aware that you can theologize it and you can, you can um, harmonize anything you want to, but it's, and I think it's used quite negatively um, fairly often. It's this idea that um, we, we, we need to have the ability to say, um, I am feeling lustful towards this person or I am doing this and that and the other. And actually, if you look at it through an evolutionary lens, you can understand why somebody's in that position, especially through a cultural lens as you add that into the mix as well. You can understand why somebody might be struggling with their marriage or whatever it is and actually um, lusting after somebody and, um, you know, talking about divorce and these sorts of things. I think it's 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 possible to reinterpret it within a 21st century lens and to make it not have as much weight as it's been used to have. But if you, even if you go back to, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a really interesting book um, called The Cost of Discipleship, which the first half is really looking at essentially cheap grace. And the second half is looking at the, the Beatitudes. And it's, it's quite dull compared to the first half. It's still really interesting, but it's compared to the first half, which is fascinating. Um, it, it's, it's, it's quite a dull second half, but um, he makes... Wait, I have read it. I, yeah. I'm also that dull, so you know we're, we're, we're dull. <laughs> we're dull together, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I love Bonhoeffer. He he is a hero of mine. Um, I'm aware a lot of listeners probably won't have ever listened. Uh, sorry, won't have ever read him, but just such a fascinating character. Um, again, probably don't have time to go into that right now. But um, 
even the way he expresses the Beatitudes, you see a lot of the sort of um, the rigor and judgment and wrath of God being um, explained to those around him in a simple uh, way to kind of pick up and understand that there are motifs and themes throughout uh, Yahweh's um, discourse throughout the Old Testament that Jesus is kind of trying to encapsulate in the Beatitudes. And I think I don't necessarily have an issue with Jesus trying to encapsulate Yahweh and express sort of judgment and and the steps one should take to not um, become judged by God. And I think hell in, 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 the, in the Beatitudes isn't actually quite translated right. I think that's destruction is probably a better word. But anyway, um, I think it's, it's, it's that. It's the, it's the fine line between um, using it as a weapon to judge somebody and to make somebody feel guilt and panic and fear and actually being able to understand that it's a tool to help you reflect on your own heart and your own mind and to take steps to correct yourself if you're doing things that you think are actually harmful. So it could be pornography, could be a really, really interesting example. So I think, um, you know, pornography isn't necessarily wrong in and of itself, but I think it can be extremely damaging to people if they're using it. Um, so I would say actually don't don't use pornography. Like pornography is actually quite addictive. It's quite harmful. There's lots of work done on how it affects the plasticity of your brain, etc., etc. So I'd say pornography itself, people want to record themselves having sex. That's their thing. And I say for you as 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 the person consuming media, it, it can actually be quite harmful and it can actually begin to affect relationships. And um, so actually kind of if you if you were to then over lay the Beatitudes onto that statement, um, you could begin to see how it makes sense. But if somebody was to overlay the Beatitudes onto something that maybe wasn't wrong, like homosexuality, for instance, um, you could quickly see how it could be used as a weapon. And I think that has been done quite a lot. So a really, really long answer to to, to your question, but does that make a little bit more sense? No, I, I can see completely where you, you're, you're going with that. Yeah, I see what you mean. Now, the, 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 the problem at this point, I don't know if you want to do this in today's podcast, really, is that as soon as you start, to, I'm thinking about, well, how I interpret those verses and what I make of them. Should we just do the hand and the eye thing and then move on? Is that is that perhaps the bet? Let's just do let's dip into it. And then if we want to come back, we can do this another time. Because sure. um, the whole issue of not judging other people it is a key ingredient of the Summa Light, you know. So, you know, Matthew chapter seven starts with those words. And so it's kind of like it's a really, really important element. But just on the hand and the eye thing, I think what, what happens there is that we get really, really stuck in the metaphorical language that Jesus uses. And we start, you know, we start thinking that he's literally talking about the anatomical unit of the eye or the discrete anatomical unit of the hand. I've even heard someone say that that it's a it's a thing against lust and masturbation that basically chop off your right hand. <laughs> I've heard people say that. I don't think that's at all what's going on. Uh, and I think what you have to understand is that all the psychological language of the New Testament, you know, of, of the era of Jesus is all embodied. It's all bodily. So particularly you see that in Greek, you see it in Hebrew as well. It's always using, you know, in Greek, it's the whole idea of your spleens are the place where your compassion comes from and the words for compassion all have the word spleen in them and things like that. So what I think Jesus is talking about when he's talking about, you know, don't lust if your right hand causes sin, chop it off, your right eye causes sin, gouge it out. He's talking about intention. So he's saying, if your intention is towards some other person when you're married, um, see that intention as nothing. So he says, or, or you will be thrown in. He says, basically, cut off that intention, that possibility that you're seeing before it leads you into destruction. So um, you're right. The word hell there is Gehenna, isn't it? So it literally means the trash heap outside Jerusalem. You'll, you know, you'll trash everything if you follow that. 
And, and from my point of view, if you then leap over into psychology, so again, purely secular psychology, it's not Christians who say this, they would say that, that uh, and again, this needs a lot of explanation in and of itself. So let me just give you the principle is that every really, really good, satisfying marriage that enjoys itself and enjoys one another and grows together. And this works for heterosexual and you know same-sex marriages, both the same, same principle, have to have a no exit strategy to them. In other words, they have to count anything that could interfere with that relationship has to be viewed as a temptation. So it could be another partner, but it could be too much time spent on the Xbox. It could be someone who's a workaholic. Um, and my view is that basically that's what Jesus is saying, create this no exit strategy where these sort of really attractive possibilities that you might look at or reach towards, you just cut them off and make them nothing so that you don't become nothing. So that what you have becomes satisfying and good and really enjoyable and fantastic. And so that's kind of how I understand that passage. Now, um, I was just listening to... Um, Alex O'Connor, cosmic skeptic, interviewing Richard Dawkins, and Richard Dawkins was saying how unacceptable it was for people like me to try and reinterpret the Bible like that. And actually, if I read it properly, I would know it was completely unacceptable. But it's reading it in that way for me that makes it coherent and makes it sensible and and makes Jesus worth following. Yeah, I, it, it's it is fascinating. I mean, so there's 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 a famous story. Um, which we get from, I think, um, Eusebius, a, 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 a historian tells us um, about Oregon, um, or for our American listeners, Origen, who um, basically read or interpreted that, that passage to to its literal extent and actually castrated himself with 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 a sharp rock. Um, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but it's 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 a really interesting and um, famous sort of um, early church. Like or, or Oregon is known for um, so many fantastic writings and sort of apologies and um, ap- apologies, listener, um, for those um, who don't know is 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 a different word. For almost defense of so he would be giving defenses of certain things that's known as apologetics or or when you write them it would be an, an apology rather than saying sorry it's 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 a it's a defense for those who, who don't know which is which is what well, was literally me a couple of years ago so there so there you go um so basically i just find it really interesting because I, I i don't have an issue with how you're interpreting it i don't i don't really struggle with that but what i do find interesting is the way that church history has interpreted it and the way that it has been uh, laid upon people i mean a, a famous example that i come back to time and time and time again um doesn't necessarily come from the beatitudes itself but it's this idea that um as people have tried to understand what scripture means um we've come to different sorts of um understanding of even stuff like heaven and hell and and purgatory so there's you know a really really famous um example would be the catholic church saying that purgatory is a place people go to um and they got to you know pay pay their 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 penance and then eventually they'll be able to get into heaven and if a baby died before they were baptized in the catholic tradition and that baby would go to would go to purgatory so you think about the the potentially millions of women who have experienced this horror of losing children in in childbirth which happened so often and then thinking that those children were stuck in this place of purgatory and only recently in the last sort of like i think it's only actually in the 21st century anyway very very recently has the catholic church gone actually we're sorry that that isn't true like that's fantastic for us today when we probably don't care as much but for you know the last 2000 years or whenever that doctrine was kind of you know originally spun like maybe 300 ad or whatever um th- these people have been dealing with this sort of um interpretation of of the scriptures and and the theology that comes out of that and i don't think there's any issue with the way that you're necessarily interpreting th- the the scriptures and the theology you're getting from it but it has caused harm before and then my next kind of point on that is kind of how how do you know that you aren't just 
interpreting scripture in a way that kind of helps you to uh, feel a certain way or understand that you're kind of getting something from it. Because the sort of Christianity you spoke about right at the beginning was this um, affirming, positive, um, almost enjoyable way of living. I'm aware that Christianity isn't necessarily enjoyable, but almost like it gives you meaning and purpose and those things are enjoyable. Um, I'm aware there is sacrifice within true Christianity. So um, how, how do you know that it is actually the right way to live? Because you know Jesus talks about turning the other cheek in the Beatitudes. He talks about uh, giving staff and your cloak, like living in um, almost abject poverty because you're willing to go above and beyond for those around you. I know that we've, we've spoken as well about the sort of early chapters of Acts where they were selling everything and living in, in community. And I'm still actually very much of the opinion that that was the way the church thought they would be um, because they thought Jesus was going to return very, very soon. But actually, as they realized he didn't return really, really soon, they were like, okay, we need to keep some sort of money to pay for food because this is going to last a bit longer than we thought it would. So how, how do you know that you're not just, um, I mean, and, and that was the people that literally, like some of them literally knew Jesus, right? And they were still thinking he was going to turn back to life. They didn't actually understand what was happening. So how do you think that you have the uh, the the right message from 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 even those verses in Matthew, like how do you how do you know that? Is it because it feels right, or is it because it is right? Hey, I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting when belief dies. This will always be an advertisement-free podcast, and for that reason, I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links and thank you for supporting the show. Right. Let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah, you, you've said so many good things there, Sam. Um, do, do you mind if I, if I go right back to what you first said and then kind of come through? So, so I'll go to that and then you can comment on that and then I'll come back to the later questions. So, so firstly, um, so my my wife is Irish and we spend um, time in Ireland um, every summer and just off Donegal, which is sort of north, north sort of uh, north, northwest island, um, they, there's an island there called the um, Al Namara, and it's um, basically the, the Isle of the Dead. It's called, and it's the place where, um, in in previous centuries, if if women had children that died in childbirth before they were baptized, they weren't allowed to be buried in consecrated land, and so they had to be buried on Al Namara. Um, and um, just kind of agree with the point that you made, and that uh, and that basically what happened was the Roman Catholic Church made a huge apology on the island that there's now a cross set up on it and a plaque apologising and consecrating the, the babies who were who died there. So that as you were talking about that sense of um, purgatory and the way that was interpreted, because I mean, ultimately purgatory really came around because Augustine was trying to solve some other theological problems somewhere else. And then he came up with this idea, which seemed to solve that problem, but then became a problem in itself. Um, so there you go. So how, how do I know it's right? So it, let, let me say a few things on this. Um, so my view is, that both Jesus and the Apostle Paul, and if, if we believe he wrote, you know, the writings that he wrote, and Peter, um, it, the, those sort of 
those letters in the New Testament, I mean, they effectively all say that you know that your Christianity is genuine if it bears fruit. So if it leads to more kindness, more grace, more peace, more love, more self-control, etc., and so on. So I guess the question I ask myself on a pretty regular basis, and sometimes it feels like the tide is going in and sometimes it feels like it's going out, but is that sense that are those good things growing in me more as a result of interpreting the Bible this way, or are they making me more malicious, more judgmental, more nasty, etc.? And um, my feeling about, so, so just going with kind of Augustine's notion of purgatory, it seems to me that one of the things that Augustine was, that was happening in Augustine's time is Rome has been sacked. Christianity has come into its ascendancy. So suddenly Christianity is now the state religion. And he has to do for the first time something that no one has ever done, which is try and combine this thing that was effectively this punk movement. Um, that was in the margins, suddenly he has to justify why this is now the majority and everyone should believe it. he has to justify why it has a military with crosses on the shield. So that whole kind of thing that comes with the conversion of Constantine, the emperor, you know, um, third century AD, is it? He's, he's converted. Uh, fourth century, 316, something like that, 316-ish. Yeah. And then that leads to the, the forcible conversion of, you know, probably, you know, millions of people um, if they're going to belong to the Roman Empire at that point in time. Um, and I, I would probably take the view that, that that was maybe an experiment that had, I mean, it sounds like a bizarre way to say it, but it's an experiment that had to be tried, you know, in terms of like, if the church could have that kind of power, it had to see if that would work. But I actually think the science of it all is it just doesn't work. Um, and so what, what we're left with, again, I think we're coming back to a point in where Christendom is dying, the power of the church is dying out, and the church is again becoming that kind of thing that's out on the margins again and is sort of probably a minority thing. And I think that's where you get into something that's a bit more authentic. And so going back to the Sermon on the Mount, the question I was constantly asking when I read the Sermon on the Mount back in those days and tried to understand what it was about is, um, how would I interpret this if it was going to work? So if this was going to be something that was livable and good and deprived of power and led to greater love, greater humility, greater self-control, all those kind of fruits of the spirit that we see, that the Bible says should accompany true Christianity. What's the interpretation of it? Mm -hmm. I, and just to add one last thing to it, that, that's a very, I mean, I, I was trained in existential psychotherapy, which meant I spent four years sort of reading Camus and Sartre and hanging out with loads of atheists and really talking about existential philosophy. And the way I read the Sermon on Mount is very existential, admittedly. So um, the existential view of history is, is not so much that history tells us what happened, although it can do. Um, it's that history, if we put our heads into history, it reveals to us the possibilities that are available to us right now. And so I guess what I did when I read the Sermon on Mount is what is the experience that Jesus is trying to point people into this and how can I replicate that in some way? So, so that, that's kind of how I read it. It's interesting. Again, um, I think what, what I want to push more on, though, is, is do, you, do, do you think that um, it, is, it is a person, Jesus, that said these things and, and portrayed these things and was these things? And do you think that you are interacting with this person today or do you think you're interacting with, with the theological framework that Matthew or whoever puts up? Like, do you, do you see 
before the New Testament, as in that sort of period of time, like say Matthew was written, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 AD-ish, um, like is, is, is there a time in those 30, 40 years since Jesus died that, you, that they are building on what Jesus said, trying to understand it, interpret it, create a theology around it, tell you this is who Jesus was, this is what he said, and you're then spinning that out into now, today. Um, do you think that there is somebody who said something back then that you are getting a message from today, and that is a message through the New Testament, but also into you through the Spirit? I assume as a Christian, you very much believe in the... I, 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 I guess you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you very much believe in, in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and how they come together and how actually when you read the Beatitudes, you are not only um, getting to understand the, the sorts of themes that Jesus was trying to get across. Let's say we can give it that. Um, but you're also getting the sort of download from God today about how that's how that's important to your life. And 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 if if that's so, how do you reconcile those things? Because it sounds, it sounds slightly circular. I'm not trying to be rude or nasty with that, but it almost sounds like you... It makes you feel good. You want it to be true. You're going to say it is true and it is Jesus and it is correct. And it's going to kind of keep doing this loop because there's no um, there's no sort of like um, killer switch or, or de de dead stop as you would have in some sort of like electric circuit. Um, there just seems to be this loop that can keeps going. If you can't turn it off and actually like actually frame it and, and understand it, how do you know it's not just um, one thing feeding the next? Does that make sense? Yeah, I kind of I, I kind of see what you mean. I I guess what I feel is missing from your version of that is, is experience. The way I view it is, it's almost like you pick up those things as hypotheses. If you try and live it, it just doesn't work, falls to pieces. It's rubbish. That's probably not what it was getting. Like if, if it does work, it's not what it's getting at. So you go back to the text again, you wonder, is it this? Um, the, the, other, the other difference, say, between a fundamentalist reading of the Bible and let's call it a non-fundamentalist reading of the Bible. It's the fundamentalist reading of the Bible is very intratextual. So it kind of has this idea that everything is there in the Bible itself somehow, which is how we get into six-day creationism and all that kind of stuff. Whereas I have a very intertextual reading of the Bible, which is, you know, I'm reading this and then I'm reading some philosopher somewhere and then read a bit of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and then I read some psychology and and the question I quite often what was happening I'd be reading the sermon on the mat and then I'm looking into the world to find what what seems to fit with this what seems to make this work um with, with the basic themes um so get, getting back to your question does it so, so 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 I agree with you that I think that the the gospels were edited and they were honed and they are let's use the negative word they are kind of propaganda you know they're designed to convince you that this stuff is true um, but I think you can read that in a very sort of um, nefarious way that these are people where they know it's not really true, but they're just trying to trick you anyway. Um, or, or I guess my preferred reading of it is that these are people who perhaps they knew Jesus or perhaps they didn't know Jesus. Perhaps it was later and they were living under the power of the Holy Spirit, which we'll, we'll maybe get into what, what I mean by that in a second. Um, and they, they're putting together a gospel if you like that somehow really fits their experience of what it means to follow Jesus according to how they are which means that when someone like me years later kind of reads it I might not get it perfectly I might not understand it completely I might have to retranslate it in order for my culture to make sense of it and all that kind of stuff but I do think that effectively it's a conveyor of an experience that couldn't fully be put into language but nevertheless is still held in these stories so what I'm interacting with is not is not Jesus himself. So I don't I'm kind of not that keen on the idea that some people have that sort of if I'm praying, Jesus walks into the room and is sat next to me. 
to, to me, that sort of blatantly feels very imaginary, really. Um, it's not wrong. You know, I'm sure it's fine for some people. It doesn't work for me. But but I, 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 I do feel that I live by the Holy Spirit and that what I have is almost like a radar that goes off when I get it right. You know, when I get yeah, that, that's the thing that that's what it should be. So when you follow something, you forgive in the right way, you hit the right level of humility, you um you know, you, you, you're, you're kind or generous in the right way. You pray in a way that seems to land. Then you get this sense in the same way that you do if you kick a football correctly, hit the right chord on your guitar. You know, it's that same embodied sense of, oh, yeah, that, that works. That's good. And that's probably something a bit like the kind of experience that those early believers who constructed the, the Gospels were trying to get people to experience. Like that's roughly... I don't know if that makes any sense. I'll hand it back to you, Sam. Save me some. <laughs> no, no, it was it was helpful. I think, um, okay, there are two ways I want to do this. So the first way would be um, Wrath of the Khan sort of era. So you're with Genghis Khan um, and you have, um, you've got everything that you have today. You can have your Bible, I'll give you your Bible. You get teleported back to that time and place. Um, you go up to Genghis Khan or his, his generals or whoever, and you, you, you try and live out this this Christian lifestyle around them. Um, I think there's a good chance that you'll just be ignored as completely mental because this is just not something that is um, set in the right time and place, in the right culture. The, the the environment's not at the right temperature to begin to pick these things up. So that's the first element, and I'll let you pick up that in a sec. But the second element I want to draw out is... Um, there could be a better and worse way to live as humans. And I think that is true. I think there are things you can do to help yourself and those around you. Um, altruism, I think, is actually a very evolutionary program, like psychologically evolutionary programmed mechanism that we use to to um, to live in this world. And um, I think that we um, have other things within us as well that are programmed by evolution that um, are better and worse ways to live. And um, sacrifice being something that is really powerful and attractive to us and um, shouldn't really be if you view a classic evolutionary framework but actually if you begin to look into why it's attractive and 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 good for somebody to experience it then you begin to go oh, okay it does actually fit um I, just, I was trying to fit a square piece into a circle hole but actually they're both circles i just didn't i didn't, didn't have it right so what, what i'm trying to get at is one um there are so many times and places where that temperament if it is true that that is the best way to live um would have just been absolutely rejected and you can say it's their hearts you can say it's whatever but actually if it is the best way to live it should be obvious to everybody at every every point that that is the best way to live and they should at least be able to experience it or have the chance to experience it and the second point is could it just be that the early christians were at a point of complete and utter bewilderment that a couple of their members had said that they'd seen the person they'd seen crucified come back to life and they began to go well, what does that mean and you see someone like paul having this revelation of jesus on the road to, to Damascus, um and uh, so damascus whatever it is and uh, essentially he then spends the next 10 years trying to understand what this means because you know um the the the, the torah tells us that that the, the man who is hung on the tree is cursed what does it mean for the messiah of the the world to be hung on a tree that is completely countercultural to paul so he's got to go away and, and work out what this means could it be that the people who began to believe that it could be true and tried to work out what it meant began to almost spin up the best way to live and how those things fitted into um yes a jewish setting but also a a humanistic um 
yeah, almost altruistic setting because actually it's from that place that you begin to get to the best. Um, you, I mean, you then see Paul being a prime example of him trying to outwork that and getting it wrong and going back and changing things and trying to have conversations and encourage people and, and rebuke people and stuff as they're doing things differently because he's he's journeying this through as well. Like, what does it mean to live with the revel revelation that the Messiah is someone who's hung on a tree? It's a completely new thing, obviously. Um, so yeah, but basically two two things there. One really is kind of, if it is the best way to live, if, if it is true, um, it hasn't fitted in cultures always. It does fit into, into today's culture, so I could see why it could feel like it's true. And also the early Christians, could they have began to work out more what it looks like to live in a, a healthy society because of the confusing revelation that they believed they had that Jesus had raised from the dead, or at least some of them said he had. And because of that, they formulated something that is more acceptable, more... Um, fundamental than maybe judaism was itself or islam is today or whatever it is because they were able to begin to go what does this mean and had the space and the bandwidth to actually begin to unpack and work these things out what, what are your thoughts on those two things roger wow small small questions <laughs> i it, well let, let's start with the first one is um I, I don't know that i fully understand the first one so let let me have a shot at it and then if i'm sort of going off being you can let me know um so firstly, my understanding of, of Christianity is it started in a context where it didn't fit the culture at all. You know, so in Rome, for example, it, it really, really was very, very countercultural. And one of the reasons why Western Europe particularly is the way it is, even though it's largely secular now, a lot of it, I mean, you've, you've spoken to Tom Holland, you know what these things are about, you know, that a lot of that is informed by Christianity. So the fact that there is still a resonance between what I'm saying and what my general culture thinks, I think, is actually just because there's still nascent Christianity knocking about in it. Um, but I do think that even if it was entirely rejected, like, let's just say I was the kind of person, I'm not this kind of person, by the way, so I'm not the kind of person who can compl completely stand and be the only person believing a thing. I just know in that culture, I probably wouldn't be a Christian. So let's just, you know, let's accept that. <laughs> um, but I think th there are times and places in history where there literally have been one person standing for that, that way of being and believing that it's the best. And you could even say that Jesus is one of them. You know, Jesus is kind of standing for forgiveness and loving enemies and being crucified for being a troublemaker. And, um, you know, effectively telling people to love their oppressors really was one of the things that was peeing off the people that sort of crucified him so much. Then in a sense, he, he is the, you could, uh, let's not call him the first Christian, but he's the kind of model of standing for something that absolutely nobody else understands in that given moment. But but in doing that, I mean, he's kind of only really following the sort of models of prophets that have come before him. I think sort of, I've been um, studying Jeremiah recently, so I've spent about a month reading through the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, um, which, which for your listeners is kind of set in the moment where the Babylonian Empire invades Judah, Israel, ancient Israel, and basically decimates their city. Um, I, and effectively, um, Jeremiah is living in a real kind of Game of Thrones situation where everybody lies, everybody, you know, is sleeping around and all, all these kind of things that he feels go against his religion. And he literally seems to be the only voice in that context arguing for this is the kind of people you should be. And my reading of that is effectively he's really saying that 
if you're not those kind of people, if, if your culture becomes corrupt, if it becomes covered in bribery and crime and injustice, it's right to implode, to fall to pieces. So when the Babylonians, Babylonians come knocking on the door, they're in absolutely no position to do anything about it, either defend themselves or form a good treaty or work out how to work it out because they're just a mess of a culture. And in that situation, I think that still was the best way to live even though at that point it seems like Jeremiah was one of the very, very few voices kind of shouting for justice, for truth, um, for you know, not not cannibalizing your kids during a siege was one of his big things. You no, know, all, all those kind of things. Um, the the other thing is it, like the direct example. Of, I mean, as you know, you know, they sent missionaries to speak to Genghis Khan, and he killed the Christians and went with the Muslims in the end, and said that they're the guys for me. Um, but a very similar kind of context for me is when um, in that period during one of the Crusades, um, Francis of Assisi, St. Francis, um, was one of the people who traveled with the Crusades because he believed the Crusades were wrong. And so therefore he went and spoke to the Sultan and had an audience with him. And, and literally that's what happened to him. Everyone thought he's mad and, you know, beat him up to begin with. But he hung around the camp for so long that eventually the Sultan spoke to him and really appreciated him. The, the really, really interesting thing about that story is the dedication, the devotion, the spiritual discipline that St. Francis later became known for, people actually wonder if he picked that up from the Muslims, that he saw them praying three times a day and thought, actually, that's the kind of devotion to God that we need. And he brought that back to the West. So that's kind of one of the theories. So, so that's kind of, so from my point of view, it is the best way to live, even if let's say I found myself in a culture where nobody ever, ever wanted to hear that. Does that does that answer the question? Are we getting close to that, or I think it's I think it's getting there. I think um, I think I think I think they both sit together from 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 what I was trying to say. So this 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 idea that um, Christianity could hold things within it. We'll start with the second part, and then we'll come back to the first part. Christianity could hold things within it because there was the bandwidth to be able to begin to unpack what it what what the good life looked like what it meant to be devotional and to be sacrificial and to be obedience to a god who is going to reveal himself in a way that is completely different to to the one we thought he would we thought he was going to come here and we we thought he was going to crush the roman empire there have been many many people that claim to be the messiah or had messianic movements before and after jesus um, because the israelites were ready and all the jewish nation were ready and an eager for for the messiah to return to announce the arrival of god to actually usher in yahweh's essentially kingdom and the jewish nation to be proclaimed and above every other nation that's that's what they thought it was it was a literal being above when actually um, from what we can tell the above meant the servant it's like as jesus kind of actually shows himself he serves others um, and lowers himself to beneath them and in doing so the first become last the last become first it's that it's that it's that backwards mentality and actually could it could it be that these people are trying to outwork this and understand what it meant and actually having the bandwidth and the space meant they could actually hone in on maybe some of the things that jesus had and i don't i don't necessarily think that jesus is wrong in what he's saying i think he could just be a very enlightened very captive person who has begun to understand things that actually there are better and worse ways to live people and you're going around saying that you know you're the pharisees the sadducees you're judging your own we should be loving each other we should be living in a different way because that is going to be more beneficial and there are others before jesus and there are others after jesus who do the similar sort of work and you see these movements start up and of course there's not been a movement like christianity um so i think that's a really interesting thing we can we can dive into but um what i'm trying to say is could it be that jesus caught something and said this is the way it 
should be. And these people began to outwork it and really dived into that and actually began to help people understand. So that today, Roger, you're sat there saying that when I when I live and breathe my Christian belief system, I am living and breathing something that feels like it is the best way to live. Well, well could it could it in fact be that it holds elements or at least uh, foundations that are potentially the best way to be? But my question then is is kind of coming back to that um, first part, which is, um, is it actually true that the supernatural element, the theological elements are actually themselves the, the, almost the pins that drive into their foundation? Or can those pins be removed and the theology taken off and there are better ways to live? Um, and if, if, if that is true, then of course, on like Genghis Khan or Julius Caesar or you know, whoever, but Neanderthal, you know, 280,000 years ago would have gone, well, no, I, I, I can understand why it's important to uh, do X, Y, and Z, but I think that this isn't true. And, and actually it's that sort of rejection of the, the grander motif and the acceptance of the other motifs. Because so, so many of the things that you talk about, you're doing from our other conversations, you're praying, your meditation, the, the, the way you connect yourself back to the now um, consistently, and you get something from that. You get something from your sacrifice, from your dedication, from your outpouring to God. I, I can see why those things would help somebody in their situation, especially in the 21st century, especially when we're so lost and we're so disorganized and we're so pain stricken. So I'm, I'm, I'm aware I'm spinning the conversation forward. So if you want to rewind it at all, that's absolutely fine. But what I'm trying to get at is, um, could it be that some of the things Jesus said um, were revolutionary in some elements and they were captured in, in a way which has been helpful for the West, especially, but other countries as well, to to understand that there are bedrocks that we can begin to explore and mine into and, and, and get the gold and the gems from. Um, but also that things like the certain chapters in the Beatitudes that I mentioned, or the, at least the verses in the Beatitudes that I mentioned, have been mined for the skeletons within the bedrock. And actually there are things there that we need to leave. And that, that's, where I, that's where I sit with it, is that um, I could pray and I could have a feeling of... Uh, communication, a feeling of love, a feeling of gratitude, um, but I have no way of actually grounding that in an, an, an affirmation, yeah, in, in an affirmation that um, I am interacting with the one who made me, who knows me, who crafted me, who brought me into this place and time for a reason and a purpose. And that is what the book tells me is is the case. So I think, you know, I can very much say that it's important to love and to cherish and to honour, etc, etc. But how do I link it back to the other truths truths that yeah. that the book proclaims so there's so much in there so feel free to ignore most of it and just pick up one point that's, that's not an issue <laughs> yeah that's massive sam um yeah where where do i even begin with something because the nice thing about us having multiple conversations is if we miss anything we can come back to it and um um let, let, let me let, let me kind of oh, where should i begin so let me start with where you ended, really, which is you you kind of ended with the sort of spiritual disciplines. OK, you pray and you have this kind of experience. And how do you know it's that? Um, so so be, because it's like what you did there was you took. So let's say when when I pray and I let's say I sense the presence of God, which um, for me is it, it sometimes takes a bit of time to get myself into that kind of place because all of life gets in the way and gets me stressed and all that kind of stuff but for me it's the experience that that there is a sort of background or a substrate to life that is absolutely present totally attentive unconditionally um kind weirdly um some of my buddhist friends who talk about when they meditate describe the same thing as well as this sort of background of grace and we've talked about are we both talking about the kingdom of god 
um they they say they say it's not god i say that's what i'm talking about when i talk about god so there's all kinds of questions there but 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 what's interesting is i don't necessarily in those moments connect connect it to all the theology so the kind of the theo the theological explanation of it probably came later the initial kind of thing was there is a god who loves me which is kind of what i was told when i was 11 or 12 i guess and then round about the age of 12 and i know this is kind of experiential um I in in church in a situation where someone prayed for the Holy Spirit to to, to be present, um, I, I had an experience that felt to me at that time deeper than an emotion. So it wasn't just a nice warm fuzzy. It wasn't just one of those nice things you get on the internet where you listen to people eating onions or whatever they're doing. You know, it it was almost I, the only way I can describe it is it felt just like a sort of bubble of warmth landed on me and remained with me for you know a, a day or so afterwards. Um, and my my Christianity ultimately is quite mystical, really, because that experience of and I can remember walking home from church that night and just feeling that everything was lucid and like the world was just this unified soup in which I was floating. So classic sort of unitative mystical experience, really, as I know now. I, and my Christianity from that point onwards really became my pursuit of that that's it that's that's the experience I'm after where can I find it and finding it in bits and pieces in different places and then eventually finding finding the place where actually it became a very frequent experience for me when I kind of got more familiar with with, with in my case it was the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues but we'll we'll no doubt get into all that I feel like I'm just landing loads loads of things here that you can pick up and talk about Okay, next episode I'll start with previously on When Belief Dies. <laughs> <laughs> Just have like moments from our last conversation yeah. jumping out. Um, I find that so interesting because um, your your claim of um, finding that you were floating in this sort of soup of being, um, I, I found that outside of Christianity. Like I found that within uh, meditation, mindfulness, uh, psilocybin, consciousness. Um, and this is why I don't like the term atheist. And I said it a few times is that it, it denotes materialism. And I think this world is so much more complicated than we are willing to give it credit for. Like we just like to have our answers. We like to know that two plus two equals four. And I can hold that when I go to sleep and when I wake up and it just makes sense, right? Um, well, I'm sorry, but maybe maybe it doesn't. Like, okay, yeah, two plus two does literally equal four. But maybe there are other things that we like to hold like that that aren't meant to be held like that. I think this is the big thing for me within Christianity and within any religious sort of framework is this um, this desire to hold something to be complete and true and to miss out on the adventure. And I think that most Christians that I meet, Roger, seem to be of the mind that they have found the answer and they are holding that answer in their, in their, in their top pocket of their shirt. So when they get to the gates of heaven, they can go, I held this here's my ticket. And actually what you're expressing is, is this, um, is this willingness to be taken along in the foundational principles that life seems to bring up, which make you feel like you have meaning and purpose and value and hope and dignity and all these things that I think are so important still with it, without the sort of like religious overtones that I kind of have rejected. I think, I think we're very, very similar in, in, in so many ways. And also we have a lot of like tension points, which I think is really exciting to, to explore. Um, but just to kind of touch on very, very briefly, like I have um, got myself into a position where I've, um, I've become almost like I've almost like I've tuned Sam down and I've got to the position where I've kind of gone, God, 
Aslan, Jesus, Spirit, if you are there, I am crying out to you to reveal yourself to me, to show that you are there and I will follow you in the things I already know are giving me meaning and purpose and, and all the things that you're expressing um, and found nothing but acceptance. And that acceptance wasn't any sort of traditional God or any sort of like classic theism that I've ever experienced before. It was, it was as if consciousness looked at me in the eyes and said, as you are, I accept. And that for me was an absolutely massive moment of going, it is okay to not have the answers and it is okay to not know with certainty whether Jesus was literally the son of God, born, raised, died, resurrected. And I think there's this, this interesting sort of dynamic within the two of us and within, you know, classic like conservative Christianity and like hardcore atheism. I think we're very much probably nearer here than either of those two. But I think there's this, this really interesting tension between us both where um, we have a lot of exploration ahead of us to begin to unpack this um, this this daylight that um, that we seem to be uh, yeah able to articulate, hopefully to some sort of coherent sense to our listeners. So um, Roger, we are looking at bringing things to a close with this episode. So I'm kind of going to hand it back over to you for any closing thoughts, and any closing feelings, but also to kind of touch on uh, where the listener can find you. Um, if you could mention your books, that'd be really, really helpful. I probably won't ask you to do this again, but I will mention to listen every time to look in the description to see those things. But for this one off, Roger, would you mind just helping people know where they could, where they could reach out after your closing thoughts? Great. Yeah. So, so firstly, Sam, just to say, I, I really, I, I know we've talked a little bit about your experiences with psilocybin and uh, other meditation techniques. And I think it's going to be great to get into that because as you know, my, my kind of sense of what you've experienced there feels very similar to what I'm talking about when I'm talking about God. And uh, so when I'm talking about this sort of deep substrate of unconditional acceptance that hangs about under life, um, that it sounds like that's really really similar to where you're at and we kind of need to talk about that other than to say that from an existential point of view so the existential uh theologian Paul Tillich used to talk about that traditional doctrine of you know being saved uh by grace through faith he used to call that um accepting acceptance that was his way of summing up that kind of thing and it does feel like if you and I were to describe our experiences experientially or existentially, that we might be reaching for words a little bit like that of like, yeah, I've been accepted and I now just have to accept that. Now, where do people find me? Um, that is a good question. I am um, a total social media hermit. So <laughs> I'm not at any of those things. Um, but um, I, my, my university webpage is Roger Bretherton. So if you go to the University of Lincoln, you can pick that up there. I have created um, a series called The Character Course, www.thecharactercourse.com, um, which basically takes eight of the character strengths that, that I, I've sort of studied, combines them with some biblical material. It was designed for church-based small groups, but many of my friends who are atheists or sort of pantheists or if you but it you know I've had lots of friends do it and still quite enjoy it so it, you know it's designed to be open and you to have any experience so probably I think that's the best place to find me right now because you can email me through that site so it's www.thecharactercourse.com amazing roger i am i am so looking forward to our conversations over the next few months um as we begin to explore this stuff so uh yeah mate strap in it's going to be good thanks Sam. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To leave any comments or thoughts, you can head over to YouTube. And to follow us on social media, or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. 
Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.